Hello, everybody. Welcome to the penultimate episode of this year. I'm glad to see you all. Welcome. And as you know, today is an episode in which I'm going to be taking questions from the comments. And if you hear any disturbance in the background, I really apologize. There's something going on and uh, and it's so loud, it's penetrating through the walls. So anyhow, anyhow uh, let me see who all is there. I can see Kunal, Naila, Prabal, Priyanshi, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Vishal Mahajan, Debosman, Praful, Lakshadeep, Piyush Patak, Vikramaditya Rathor, Nikhil, Captain Steve Rogers, Abhiyanshu, Ajay Kaushal, Samarth, Deep Shah, Samarth Acharya, Jadu, Jay Mithaiwala, Harshada Pednekar, Mr. 5-3, and many other people. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So let us begin with the questions. Just a second. Okay, let's begin with question number one. And question number one is about the James Webb Telescope. So as you know, this telescope has just been launched a couple of hours ago. It has gone into space. It is uh, currently doing fine. So the question is, there are three questions here. Many more I got. So this will represent those questions. The first one is by the newbie. Can you tell how the James Webb Telescope is going to work? The second question is, how can the James Webb Space Telescope see 13.8 billion years in the past? And how is it different from the Hubble Space Telescope? And the third one is the James Webb Telescope will be launched in December. How different is it from the Hubble? What new discoveries are we hoping to make with it? Is there anything in particular that excites you about it? Okay, so what is the James Webb Space Telescope? It's a new telescope that uh, the, the Americans, NASA, are sending into space. It's in partnership with the European Space Agency, ESA. The European Space Agency has provided the rocket to launch this uh, telescope, the Ariane 5 rocket, which was launched from Central, uh, Central America today. So what is this telescope? So it's a much larger telescope, first of all, than the Hubble Space Telescope. If you look at the Hubble Space Telescope, it has uh, its primary lens has a diameter of about two and a half meters. The James Webb has a, a diameter of six and a half meters. That's an enormous lens. Okay, so that's the first difference. The second thing is that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to see the universe in the infrared range. So we see light in the visible range, you know, the Vibgyor spectrum. The Hubble also mostly saw the universe in the visible light in the Vibgyor spectrum and a little bit more here and there. This new telescope, the James Webb telescope is going to see the universe in mostly in the infrared range and some, some of the wavelengths will be in the visible range, orange onwards. So it's going to see the universe in a completely different way in the infrared wavelength. And that is very interesting because there, there's a very good reason for doing that. And that is why it's being called a time machine. It's going to be able to look back into the history of the universe uh, almost at the uh, to the beginning of uh, when the universe formed after the Big Bang. And the reason for that is that in the very early universe, when the first galaxies were formed, the light that went out in all directions, it has taken more than 13 billion years to reach us. And it has traveled through a lot of space and the space time has been expanding. And those light waves, they have also been stretched out 
over time over the billions of years so light which may have started as ultraviolet right light for example has been over the years stretched out stretched out stretched out and it has become it has gone deep into the infrared wavelengths now so it's not possible for an ordinary telescope to see those wavelengths and that's why this telescope is going to do the job and it's going to see things which uh, essentially date back to the very almost the very beginning of the universe the first galaxies the first stars and all that so it's going to be able to do it because it sees in the infrared wavelength now the thing is that infrared uh, Ray, infrared wavelengths are available all around us it is essentially what we call heat waves our bodies give off heat the earth gives off heat the sun gives off heat and all of this is infrared waves and therefore if you put a telescope in earth orbit it's going to be swamped with all this infrared noise and it won't be able to detect the very very faint wavelengths that come from the beginning of the universe and that's why this telescope is being sent to a place far away from the earth one and a half million kilometers away from earth at the l2 lagrange point and it's going to be shielded from the uh, sunlight and everything by this uh, by by a, a special uh, a light shield essentially heat shield and it's going to be cooled to around 40 degrees kelvin which is about 233 minus 233 degrees celsius so it's going to be cooled to around that temperature because it will be shielded from all this light and everything and then it's going to be able to make those uh, observations it has about a 10 year lifespan so it's going to be able to peer back into the very beginning of the universe now it's a very perilous journey it has just started it is going to take another 29 days to reach its destination and it's going to go into orbit around the destination the l2 lagrange point and it's going to have to uh, unfurl itself because it is so large it cannot fit inside a rocket so they had to create uh, a lens that can be folded in an entire spacecraft that can be folded into a small uh, space so now it will have to unfold itself and there are lots of potential failure points in that so it's going to be a very tricky next 29 days and it's going to start doing the observations only 6 months down the down the line when everything is calibrated and set so right now the journey is still going on it's still a way it's going to be like 6 uh, months of terror because it's a very expensive telescope it's like 25 years in the making it cost 10 billion dollars there's been so much testing and all that and we we hope it doesn't fail so there is still a long way to go for the telescope to become operational but the journey has now finally begun so that is what the james webb telescope is about and that's what it's going to do it's very exciting because it's going to uh, show us things we have never seen before it's going to peer deep back into the into the very beginning of the universe and it's going to do some planetary science also it's going to look at exoplanets it's going to look at the universe in a completely different way so that's the exciting thing about it So that's what I can say in short about the James Webb Space Telescope. Okay, next question. I am Gypsy. I want to ask which part of India do we come from? Uh the answer is very simple. The Gypsy, the Romani people, the Gypsies, so-called Gypsies, Romani people are from western India, uh Gujarat, Rajasthan and Sindh mostly. uh some people claim they are from punjab which is not the case that is there is no evidence for that if you look at their facial features if you look at their customs if you look at their language it is closest to the people of western india that is gujarat rajasthan and sindh so that's the origin of the gypsy people of course they are all of indian origin there is not much difference but the place of origin is western india 
Okay, let's take the next question. It's by Abhijit Mishra. Do you think the revival of Kashi is the first giant step in the resurrection of our ancient culture and heritage? I think it's a very good step. The the uh, we are taking baby steps in the resurrection of India's ancient culture and heritage, and the revival of Kashi, which is just beginning. I would say it's a it's a very important and very welcome step in the direction. So for a very long time, Kashi has been Varanasi has been a city of great. Um, it's been a very dirty city, a very congested city, right? Uh, it's 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 had this reputation of being a very filthy place, very badly governed, very congested, very narrow lanes. If you want to go to a temple, you have to go through very narrow lanes. It's not a pleasant experience at all. So that is now being changed, and uh, you know the entire place is being opened up, widened out, and all that. Uh, there have been some complaints on various quarters, etc., about certain things that were done. But I think overall, it's it's a uh, it's a project to give back the great dignity that this great city requires, uh, to to free the temple from all the narrow enclosures and encroachments and all that. Now we can see the temple in the big light and all. So this is a, a project that is just starting. It is a very good step. I think we need to do this in all our other great cultural centers, if you know what I mean. So I think it's a it's a very good step. I think it's a very welcome step, and we need to uh, take this as the first baby steps in a very long and extensive project of reviving our ancient culture and heritage and of decolonizing our civilization. So it's a it's a very good it's a very good step. Okay, next question. So this is by D. Siddhu. Who is the greater king, uh, Shivaji Maharaj or Maharaja Ranjit Singh? Okay, so how do we determine what, what is the criterion for greatness? Let, we, we have to go back to first principles. I always keep saying go back to first principles. So let's do it here. Let's let's take this as an exercise. What is the definition of greatness? So the definition, in my opinion, of greatness is the maximum the more you the more of an impact you have on more people that the the greater you are. So greatness can be good, it can be bad. For example, Mao Zedong killed 80 million people. That was a huge impact, but his greatness was 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 evil greatness, right? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Stalin. He also did, he, he was also, you can say, is a great person. He's, his career impacted a lot of people, but the impact was negative to a great extent. So that again is greatness, but it's not the right kind of greatness. Now let's, let's take a look at uh, these two uh, kings in ancient India, in, in more recent India, uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj and Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So Shivaji, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj lived from, from 1630 to 1680. He died at the, uh, at the age of 50, very young. And what was his impact? So when he died, the Maratha Empire was still quite small. But the Maratha Empire, after his death, rose and rose and rose. And it it continued until I one could say the Anglo Maratha War, six, uh, around 18, 18, 18, 18, 18 20, uh, thereabouts. So, about 140 years after he died, the Maratha Empire continued. It grew to a great extent. It encompassed almost the whole of India and parts of Afghanistan. So, the, the framework that he created, the administrative and military framework that he created, it, it enabled his successors to take the empire to incredible greatness. So that is the impact of Shatrapati Shivaji Maharaj. Even though he died young, his impact was, was significant. It was a monumental impact, right? 
so his empire the empire he founded continued to grow it reached an enormous extent and it lasted a, approximately a century and a half after he died now let's look at maharaja ranjit singh he lived from 1780 to 1839 right he founded the sikh empire in 1799 and the sikh empire, sikh empire disintegrated within 10 years of his death and the it's called the empire but actually it's just a kingdom it was uh, it was uh, punjab uh, some parts of kashmir and some parts of afghanistan that's it it was small compared to the maratha empire so the impact of chhatrapati shivaji maharaj is way 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 greater orders of magnitude greater than that of maharaja ranjit singh i'm not saying that maharaja ranjit singh was not a great king he was a very great very good king i admire his policies and the 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 actions he took but if you look at the overall impact of greatness of these two gentlemen chhatrapati shivaji maharaj far exceeds maharaja ranjit singh in greatness in his positive impact over the indian uh, nation over the indian civilization so i would say the greater king is chhatrapati shivaji maharaj that is my assessment based on what i just uh, on the criteria i just uh, laid out okay next question it's a couple of questions in one neel mehta says what are your views on the theory that an ancient civilization existed before the last ice age 11600 years ago when a cataclysmic event took place and destroyed most of it and the sahara desert was a forest around that time and the civilization existed too and the second question is please pick my question for once do you think civilizational resets happened before like hancock graham hancock suggests if yes if it happens again can we how can we protect our scientific technological knowledge and cultural heritage uh, and so on and so forth okay so what are my views on the theory that an ancient civilization existed before the ice age look if you look at india's genetics if you look at the history of the indian subcontinent the genetic lineages that we have in india are very ancient they are if you look at the the very very famous r1a1a heritage lineage haplogroup it is between 17000 to 26 27 28000 years old which way predates this uh, cataclysmic event this hypothesized cataclysmic event so which is called the younger dryas event so what we know is that there was a sudden resurgence in the ice age around 11600 years ago it is believed uh, to be because of a number of possible uh, of of uh, possible uh, things that may have happened including an impact event a comet or an asteroid hitting the earth we have found some evidence of that in greenland etc so it looks like something happened on a, in our planet right some kind of impact event or something like that which caused a resurgence of the ice age which was slowly going away so this happened around 11600 years ago but if that happened it certainly did happen but it doesn't seem to have had any effect on india because our lineages have continued unbroken right if you look at the archaeology of india of course we have not looked that far our archaeologists are sleeping but we have found no 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 evidence of some kind of reset happening in india right and our lineages have, have continued unabated so it looks like if something like this happened there was not much of an effect on india there must have been some uh, uh, coastal effect if there was a upsurge in water levels or something but we still don't have sufficient data in india but the lineages have continued unabated unchanged unbroken which means that there was no uh, there was no dying off or any such calamitic uh, event so then uh, 
is it possible some ancient civilization would have existed before the ice age in the case of india the civilization civilization continues in other places it is possible that a civilization may have existed somewhere maybe in europe maybe in north america central america southern america and maybe possibly it may have died off it is certainly possible do we have evidence of that we do not have evidence of that but it is certainly possible that such events can happen and an existing civilization can be wiped out and we may lose all all evidence of that it is certainly possible so i think that answers uh, both the questions to some extent right so um, and what can we do if it happens again to protect our scientific technological knowledge cultural heritage etc well in the case of an unforeseen um, natural event like an asteroid strike comet strike a massive earthquake there's nothing much we can do you know i mean certain certain events are just way too powerful and our technology is just so puny that it won't be able to do much about it if we can see a comet heading in our direction then maybe we can deflect it or divert or divert its path its trajectory that is certainly possible but if we find it too late then we won't have much time to do anything about it right so there are certain um, precautionary measures in place uh, we are tracking the various known near earth asteroids we keep an eye on the skies and see if any new comet is coming our way all those things are done and hopefully that should be uh, enough hopefully so uh, that's what we can do about it but in case a comet event uh, impact is going to happen there's not much we can do to uh, you know preserve things so we are still in in the infancy of technology and all that so it is still a little early for us to be able to uh, insulate ourselves properly from a major cataclysmic event like that okay next question is by dr saurabh i want to take india back to its glorious form so what would be better joining an already established political party or creating a new organization to mobilize people well that's an interesting question the thing is that if you want to create a new organization that is like you're starting from scratch you're starting from scratch you have to uh, create a network of people you have to raise funds you have to establish a leadership structure you have to uh, there's a lot of work that goes into creating a new organization it's like a political startup that you're talking about right and if you join an already established political party you get all the benefits of the already existing uh, structures the power structure the networks of people uh, the finances that you need to run a political campaign all that you get uh, the benefit of all of that right away you just join the political party but the drawback is that you will have to uh, buy into the political system the ideology that already exists so then you have to go and find a political party that is the closest to whatever you believe in and then you need to fit into it somehow and you may have to rise up the ranks slowly because it will already have leadership and all that so yeah that that makes it a little harder but starting a political movement or party from scratch is even harder because you're starting essentially from zero with no money no funding no networks no contacts you're starting from zero so i think uh, 
if you want to take the path see in any endeavor you must take the path of least resistance the shortest the shortest different distance between two points is a straight line now in life there are no straight lines you have to take winding paths and the winding road sometimes but you should look at the bigger picture in mind you should keep the bigger picture in mind what's the big objective and then trying to find the best way of reaching it so in case you don't agree with any existing political ideology then you may have to start a new political party for which i i would say all the best but uh, typically you would want to join an existing political party or movement whichever suits you best and try to work within that and rise to the position that uh, you deem is the right position for you to make a difference so there are two options i think the uh, joining an existing political party would be an easier option as long as its ideology and the world view it, it it is similar to that that you have okay next question is by avinash could there be stars and planets made from antimatter antimatter so antimatter is the mirror opposite of regular matter everything is opposite all the quantum numbers are opposite the charges are opposite and all so on so instead of a of a uh, of of a proton you will have an anti proton which is the which has the opposite charge of a proton proton is positively charged and anti proton is negatively charged um, instead of electrons you will have positrons which are positively charged and so on and so forth so it is certainly possible to create atoms from antimatter and if you can create atoms from antimatter you can create entire stars and planets from antimatter the only thing is that we don't see any evidence of antimatter any significant evidence of antimatter in the universe we do find uh, positrons we do find antiprotons from uh, from cosmic rays and all that but we have never seen a large scale structure that is uh, that is clearly made up of antimatter it's certainly hypothetically theoretically possible there is nothing in the laws of physics that says that you cannot have stars and planets made from antimatter it is hypothesized that when the big bang happened there may have been two mirror universes that were created a pos- a, 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 a universe made of ordinary matter the one that we live in and a mirror universe made of antimatter you know so so that sort of thing in that case everything there would be made of antimatter stars planets galaxies etc so it is certainly possible there is nothing in the laws of physics that says that this cannot happen we can certainly uh, envisage a universe in which you would have this possibly even in our own universe okay this is by debraj how does the amazon forest catch fire so there are two me- there are multiple mechanisms of uh, forest catching fire one big spectrum of mechanisms is natural mechanisms or lightning strike or or dry climate and, and then you have some event that causes a spark which which uh, makes the forest catch fire so these are there's a bunch of uh, natural mechanisms by which a forest can catch fire the second mechanism is that it is set by human hands the fire is set by human hands so mostly that's what's happening in the amazon rainforest in in mostly in brazil what's happening is that people are trying to clear the rainforest to to make way for uh, for plantations etc because they want to monetize the land you know they 
to to clear new land and grow crop, crops and plantations over there essentially what's happening is that they are growing soybeans for animal ag- agriculture in the united states in north america you have this enormous industry of animal agriculture essentially beef the beef industry and what do you feed beef you feed the beef soybeans and you need large amounts of land to grow all those soybeans so what they're doing in south america in brazil is that they're clearing the amazon rainforest destroying the rainforest and uh, planting soybeans there so for that they are setting these certain farmers etc prospectors you could say are setting the forest deliberately on fire clearing big patches of land and then using that for farmland so mainly that's what we are witnessing right now the amazon forest is being set on fire repeatedly by human hands okay this is by vishal do you think that china is better off earning profits from indian companies and strengthening its own economy rather than fighting a war over petty territorial disputes if china wants to fight a war over territory it would most likely be a proxy war including pakistan army backed terrorists rather than a full fledged one china has many strategic and geographical disadvantages in the himalayan region most of its air bases are in the southeast region of the mainland close to the south china sea and taiwan see what we see right now what do we see right now is that china is engaging in various kinds of warfare not simply uh the salami slicing tactics on the border regions and in the south china sea etc it is also engaging in what is known as trade warfare and if you if you examine the kind of trade relationship india and china have china is using india as a source for raw materials and it is importing raw materials essentially from india it, and it is exporting back processed and finished goods to india so this is the kind of thing the east india company was doing to india it was using india it had destroyed india's industries it was using india for raw materials and it was getting those raw materials for very cheap and then it was sending it was selling back finished goods to india and that's how it was draining india's wealth out of india now similarly china right now has a very big trade surplus with india i think it's in the 60 70 80 maybe 90 billion dollars per year that sort of thing so that is a very good strategy why do you need to go to war with india when you can enjoy this wonderful trade surplus with india and then whatever money they are extracting out of india in this manner they can redirect it into pakistan and other places to bleed india in a variety of ways so that so essentially what's happening right now is that india is funding china's anti india activities by allowing china to enter into this to to have this major significant massive trade surplus with india so that is a strategy the chinese have been employing for for several years for for close to two decades i would say when when they have since when they have had this trade surplus with us so it's strengthening china's economy it is allowing the chinese to use india's own money against india and when it comes to fighting a war the chinese will not just go to war for, for just like that they will go to war if and only if they are convinced that it is going to be something that they are going to win right now if they go to war with india they may end up uh, getting a bloody nose and that's why they will just keep on needling india and the northern border uh, pressurizing india by having these big troop concentrations in tibet and so on and so forth and in, in trying to make small land grabs and all that a few 100 meters here a few 100 meters there that's the that's been the strategy since the 1960s and the strategy still exists they are essentially uh, 
escalating below the threshold there is a certain threshold that leads to war you keep on escalating uh, the the uh, situation just below the threshold for war and that's how you just keep on going you keep on grabbing a few inches here and there salami slicing very thin slices so that is the the strategy that the chinese have adopted it's a very uh, successful strategy thus, thus far now india has really toughened up its stance on the border india is building roads it, it's india is building its networks infrastructure very rapidly so now the chinese are not happy about that and that's why the the, the there has been further escalation on the border like the galwan clash etc so that is what the chinese are doing you are right they have some disadvantages in the himalayan region but they also have certain advantages for instance uh, most of their airfields like you say are far away but they have also built airfields in tibet so there are a couple of major air bases they have in tibet and the other advantage they have is that their entire population center is far 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 away from the indian border right tibet is almost empty so so there's nothing india can really hit and destroy in tibet so that is the uh, advantage and disadvantage you could say at the same time that that the chinese have in tibet so that is the situation so right now i don't see the chinese fighting any war and the territorial disputes are not really petty for the chinese it may be small for india it is uh, significant because they want indian territory they want arunachal pradesh they want they have already taken aksai chin in 1962 and they also hold a certain portion of kashmir these are not trivial or petty territorial disputes as far as india is concerned right now uh, so so the, so that is the situation they will certainly not go to war right now unless they feel that they are guaranteed to win it so it is all a long term well thought out strategy that they have and india's strategy has to be very clear that in the next 20 years or so india needs to somehow engineer the independence again of tibet if that is done then the entire northern border will be peaceful again so that is has to be the long term plan that india has and right now we are very far from that because we are not in a strong situation uh, the way we would like to be and the way we should we need to be in in order to break tibet away from china so that's where we are at at now uh, at present okay this is by akash the insides and outsides of the houses and buildings of towns and cities where we live affect people mentally the modern architecture its design looks specifically made to make people depressed and gloomy is it right the houses of old times not just restricted to india but european european houses too also looked way better compared to let's say new york city apartments which are like gilded cages what are the possible reason behind this the thing is first of all in the past we had a much lower population than what we have today today the world's population is just exploding right so that's why we are forced to build uh, vertically in the past we had the horizontal style uh, uh, layout of cities where you would have two two storied three storied buildings and all that like we had in the uh, saraswati sindhu era of our civilization we had multiple storied buildings but those were just few and far between only in the major cities and most houses would be spread horizontally not vertically and the most you would have would be like three storied or maybe four storied buildings not more than that and the houses were laid out at, according to a certain plan uh, it is called vastu shastra in uh, in india i believe in other places also they had certain rules for for the layout of a house so you it would ensure that the windows were big the sun, sunlight would come into the house every day 
today you have these apartments in india and other countries where you never get to see the sun there's no sunlight all the lighting is artificial there's not enough wind air circulation lots of problems so what what's happening now is that you are building these modular apartments modular houses there are like matchboxes that people can just go and uh, you know live in just exist in there's no living there so that's what's happening you know i mean everything is being commodified everything is being cheapened it is all about profits so real estate is all about, about profits today uh, you have a piece of land you raise a 50 story building there and sell these little matchboxes to people at exorbitant rates and you make a lot of money out of it that's what's going on in india and other countries so yes it is not designed the entire uh, emphasis is on profits today there is no emphasis on well being of people on the physical and mental well being of people it it makes a huge difference to see the sunlight every day and if you don't see sunlight every day you're going to get depressed and gloomy and all that so yes we have lost touch with our history with our culture our culture not only in india also in europe like you say it had a certain way of doing things and uh, it ensured the well-being of people but today th- that is simply not the not of a, a point of focus at all and that's why you find all these people today this entire epidemic of mental illness and mental issues and uh, all that so yes yes the, the, you are absolutely right the, the possible reasons it's just that everything is commercialized now and the only focus is on profits everything is about profits human lives are also to be used as commodities and to be profited off so this is the essential thing about capitalism it's all about quarter upon quarter profits endless never ending profits nothing else matters the quarterly uh, balance sheet that's all that matters this uh, the stock port the the stock uh, market uh, rankings etc that's what matters so that is the reason why we have all these problems having I mean, uh, what we face today everything is commodified human lives are also commodities everything is to be uh, used for profit so that's unfortunately why we are in the situation today okay this is by archit uh what according to you is the best way to gamify the learning of sanskrit i personally think making an app, making a fun app like duolingo but with a much higher focus on the elements of sanskrit could be a fun way what do you think so today gamification is a very big thing gamification means the introduction of game playing elements into non game playing environments like websites like apps and all that so let's say you have an educational app which is actually a serious app for learning something but if you gamify the app and you introduce elements of game playing challenges levels and all that then it makes it a much more interesting and fun experience so that is gamification so how do you gamify the learning of sanskrit well like you said you need to make a fun app which has levels which has which has challenges maybe you can even make it multiplayer if you can think of a way to do that right i haven't seen duolingo i've heard of it it's a, it's a language learning app yes so yeah something like that needs to be done i mean i cannot uh, give the best possible way of doing it but certainly uh, a, one can brainstorm different ways of of uh, gamifying learning a language and sanskrit obviously it's a very structured language so it would be easier to structure the gamification of of the app so what i would say needs to be done is uh, we need to create an app which has elements of game playing which has levels which has challenges which may be multiplayer and the thing is this see it's uh, not only 
apps that that promote languages it is things like uh, it is things like anime for instance and entire games themselves that that can promote culture and languages if you look at japanese anime it has done so much to promote japanese culture and the japanese language across the world japanese anime and the games that the japanese designers make that those have been so influential in promoting japanese culture and people find it very cool to learn japanese right today sanskrit is not cool because there is nothing like that in sanskrit there are no games in which which have elements of sanskrit and elements of indian culture and there are no animations animes and all that uh, that again have any elements of sanskrit or indian culture and again no apps so so these things can be thought about and they can certainly be incorporated and and, and gamification can be incorporated in in an app to learn sanskrit Okay, why is Venus hotter than Mercury? Why is Venus hotter than Mercury? So, if you look at the uh, the planet Mercury, it is the closest planet to the Sun in the entire solar system, and it's very hot. I mean, if, if, if when you the the side that faces the Sun is like around seven hundred degrees Celsius. I'm just I'm just uh, doing a ballpark thing here, around seven hundred plus degrees Celsius, and the side that is not facing the sun will be like minus 200 or so perhaps degrees celsius so it's an extreme environment but the side that faces the sun is really hot maybe not 700 maybe something less but it's quite hot but venus is even hotter than the side of mercury that is any at any given time facing the sun why is it so and the reason is <coughs> excuse me it's because of the atmosphere of venus so the atmosphere of Venus is uh, more than 90%, more than 94-95% made up of carbon dioxide. Now carbon dioxide is what we call a greenhouse gas. It is a gas that absorbs heat and traps heat. So when you have an atmosphere that's made up of more than 90% carbon dioxide, it's going to cause a runaway greenhouse effect. It's, it just absorbs the heat from the rays of the sun, from the sunlight, and it traps it within the atmosphere. It is not a, the atmosphere doesn't release that heat. So the atmosphere over time has become hotter and hotter and hotter. It is hot enough to melt lead on the surface of Venus. Now Venus has an enormously thick atmosphere. The volume, the the mass of the atmosphere is like ninety times more than ninety times the mass of Earth's atmosphere. And the thickness, uh, the atmospheric pressure is also more than ninety times the atmospheric pressure of Earth. And it's all mostly carbon dioxide, more than 94-95% carbon dioxide. So all these conditions have created this enormous runaway greenhouse effect on the planet. And that is why the temperature is so incredibly high on the surface of the planet or inside the atmosphere. It is hot enough to melt lead, which is a metal, which is incredible. So that's why Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system. It is even hotter then Mercury. Okay, the next question is by Dungar Singh Chauhan. What are your views on the Antikythera mechanism found in Greece? So the Antikythera me mechanism is a... So let's, let's take a look at what this mechanism looks like. Let me share my screen, the Antikythera mechanism. We will go to Google and take a look at that. Let me put Google on. Here we are. Antikythera mechanism. Here it is. 
and let's go to images. So this is an artifact that was found by archaeologists about 100 plus years ago in a shipwreck of a Greek island called Antiktera. So this is a very interesting mechanism. It's, it's clearly a dial. It's not just one dial. It's an entire cog and dial structure. If you can, and if you see the reconstruction, it looks something like this, something like this. So it, it's a, it's more than two thousand years old. It's a very intricate mechanism with lots of interlocking uh, dials and levers and all that. And what this mechanism was, was it was a device that would allow you to. Uh, to keep time, it, it was a, a time measurement um, mechanism. It would allow you to predict solar and the lunar eclipses in the future. It is also something that would allow you to track the Olympic Games, which were held once every four years. It was also a navigation mechanism. It would allow you to navigate where you are based on the date and all that. Uh, so, so that's what it was. It was a navigational and uh, timekeeping mechanism a very intricate thing it, it is in some ways more intricate than the clockwork you have in modern day clocks so it's very interesting that the greeks more than 2000 years ago were able to create a mechanism that was that uh, that was this uh, complex and this accurate it has been recreated reconstructed uh, in the present day so what happened is that for a very long time the entire thing was like rusted and it was filled filled with sediment and it could not be uh, we could not look inside it what what it was like but in the 21st century because of uh, various techniques i think it was it's not uh, i think it was a position emission tomography or something positron emission tomography or one of these techniques one of these uh, tools that enabled us to look inside the mechanism and see its internal structure and that's how we have been able to recreate this entire mechanism and see how it works. So it was a very, very, very complex mechanism and surprisingly very accurate. So that is what this Antikythera mechanism was. All right, let's go on to the next question. This is by Raghav Singh. Why our historians do not consider the historical records of the Bards, the Bards, as a reliable source for writing the history? I am a Tanwar Tomar Rajput, and our Bards tell our migrations in the following way, which even gives an indication that the Tomar Rajputs probably migrated into India, were not natives. Um, the entire history is there. So, what are my views about it? So, the thing is that um, when you want to um, when you want to record the history of a place, you have to take into consideration all the possible sources of history. You have oral sources, you have written records, you have archaeology, you have other, other uh, epigraphic sources, literature, everything that's available has to be considered seriously. And then based on all the data points and all the elements of data that you have, you come to an informed and educated understanding of what the history of a certain place, certain region, certain lineage, certain culture was like. Now, India's Marxist historians, they summarily uh, dis dis discard certain aspects of, of Indian historiography. For instance, you have oral records, which are said that the, which they say that they are all myths and legends. We cannot consider them to be in any way accurate. So the, one of the one of the major ways of recording uh, ancient events in the past, especially among the Rajputs, was the uh, stories of the of the bards, the bards, or or the charans. They were called also, right? So they would record the history of various families of various clans. 
for centuries there would be families of these people who would do it generation after generation and i'm sure these records still exist in some places and yet these are completely disregarded by by historians i don't think historians have even bothered to look into these records that may still exist in various places in various families and that's why these uh, ancient uh, these the, these ancient records of indian history are completely disregard, disregarded and that's why we are missing big big chunks and big elements of indian history especially in western india in the in the uh, rajput uh, regions of india which were in the past ruled by rajputs so i think that it is very important that we should take all possible sources of information into consideration including the records of the bards of the bards of the charans etc because i think there's a wealth of information that we can uh, extract from these records and once again there is another source of records which is the jain records the uh, jain uh, sources have also been recording history for for like i would say thousands of years i think there are places where uh, there there are most likely still existing records from a thousand plus years back among among the jain collections i think that also should be looked into if it is still available so there are many sources of information that have completely been been neglected that would certainly enrich india's understanding of its history so i think it needs to happen it would it would be very good if uh, present day historians or future historians would look into these sources as well okay this is by pink line cabs suppose the indian economic growth matches the chinese economy in the coming years as china has trapped many countries in its debt trap how could india liberate these stuck countries sri lanka nigeria other countries etc okay so first of all we are not sure of how india's economic growth is going to go i am hoping it is going to be 10% plus in the next 20 years which will enable india to to eventually quickly in the next two decades grow to a middle income com- uh, country for that we will need double digit growth for around two decades so that is a big ask hopefully it happens now what about the debt trap so what is the debt trap right everyone talks about the debt trap the debt the debt trap is this the chinese they offer loans to uh, various low income countries what is now what is what is known as third world countries especially like you mentioned sri lanka nigeria other african countries what they do is that they offer these big loans ostensibly for national development for certain projects infrastructure projects development projects they offer these big loans and the terms of the loan are terrible like very very high interest rates and all that and these countries for some reason they accept those uh, those those terms and what happens is that after whenever the money is due they are unable to repay the money because the interest rates and all that is so high and then the chinese what they do is that they nationalize the they, they don't nationalize the project but they essentially take over that that piece of land that project or whatever and they essentially own it so that's what's happening in sri lanka uh, that's what's happening in various parts of africa the question is why do these countries accept such onerous loan conditions and the answer is very simple these are third world countries they are essentially run by dictatorships or something similar to that so it's very easy to bribe the person who is in charge of the show to to bribe whoever the the president or prime minister or dictator and then offer this loan that guy will get whatever he wants his big piece of money his big piece of the pie and then eventually he'll be gone and his country will have to 
bear the burden of the loan that they cannot repay. So the Chinese are using that to, to essentially colonize various parts of the world, especially the third world countries. So that is the Chinese debt trap. The Sri Lankans have fallen into that. Surprise. Various African countries are falling into that and so on and so forth. The question is, how could India liberate the stuck countries? My, my question is, why should India liberate the stuck, stuck countries? Is India on a, on a mission to liberate the world? India has its own problems. Geopolitics is a game in which you look out for yourself and you align with other countries that have interests that are that match yours. You don't go giving free lunches to the world. That's not how the world works. The question is, why should India bother to liberate these countries? We did not put them in that hole. They dug the hole for themselves and went in, into that. It is for them to extricate themselves from the world. Now, what India can do is India can uh, diplomatically engage with lots of countries, especially in uh, the African region, etc., and develop its own relationships with various countries. But India should not offer to extricate countries by giving them free money. That simply doesn't work. There is no free lunch in the world. There is no free lunch in the geopolitics. In, in geopolitics, India does not need to bother with liberating countries which are in trouble. When India is in trouble, does anybody come to, to help India? Nobody does. So that is not how the world works. When you dig a hole and you jump into that hole, you have to extricate yourself. These countries went into this willingly. It is for them to find a way to extricate themselves out of it. Of course, the Chinese influence is growing and we need to find other ways of... of uh, of countering the growing Chinese influence. So for that, India needs to become a much more powerful country, a much bigger economy, and then uh, play the geopolitical game at a certain level. But India, in my opinion, should not even waste a minute trying to thinking about how to liberate the world and make the world a better place and all that. No, look out for yourself because that is how the game is played. Okay, next question, next question. Sohit Kumar Singh says, what are the challenges for a 21-year-old aspiring to build a space elevator in India with the help of government or privately? Since China and America are planning to build by 2040, I aspire to build it by 2035. So I am not aware of any, uh, I, may, I, may, see, I don't know everything in the world, so I am not aware of any Chinese plans or American plans to build a space elevator by whatever year. So the question, first of all, is what is a space elevator? A space elevator is a big structure which is more than 36,000 kilometers long in which you have one end which is in orbit around the Earth uh, beyond the geostationary orbit uh, limit and the other end is tethered in the Earth itself and the whole thing goes round and round like uh, if you had a string and you were whirling it round. So that's what a space elevator is. So it is there is a, there is a counterweight up in space beyond 36,000 kilometers. Uh, an anchor point in the in the earth itself which will uh, hold this thing together and a long tether a long tether that is more than 36000 kilometers long it needs to be made of a material that can withstand that incredible strain that incredible stress it should be able to withstand the the pos possible effect of micrometeorites of space debris it should also be able to withstand the corrosion of the earth's atmosphere and as far as we know, no such material exists that has those qualities, right? So as of today, the technology doesn't exist to build a space elevator. And then even if you had the technology, you would have to create this incredibly 
enormous structure. We don't have the space launch uh, capability to do that. And it would cost possibly hundreds of billions of dollars to create a structure like that. Like that. At least tens of billions of dollars, even if we had the technology. So if you want to build a space elevator, so first of all, you need to be a multi-billionaire. Okay, that is the first criterion. You need to have, you need to be a multi-billionaire. Then you need to be able to do the R&D. You need to have the R&D capabilities to uh, develop a material which doesn't exist because that material will need to, need to be able to withstand incredible uh, tension and it needs to be um, resistant to corrosion, resistant to micrometeorite and space debris impacts and all those things. So there's a lot that you need to develop, a lot of technology that you need to develop in the next 15 years. But first of all, you will have to become a multi-billionaire. Will the government of India be interested in such a project? I doubt it very much. This is a very speculative, futuristic technology. You will have to sink in tens of billions of dollars into the research and the development. And there's only one chance at building it right. Because if you build a space tether, a space uh, elevator, and it breaks, it's going to have a devastating impact on uh, from the space debris perspective, right? So there's, there's a very big challenge when it, when it comes to building a space elevator, I do not see it being built anytime by 2040, maybe not in the next 50 years. It is a very interesting hypothetical theoretical thing. It is certainly feasible if you have um, the material and the technology to build it. What can actually be done is you can build a space elevator on the moon. Over there, the geostationary limit is the geostation, geostationary distance is much less than 36,000 kilometers, and the tensile strength you will need will be much less. So I think materials like Kevlar, etc., may actually uh, fit the bill of the of the material of the tether. So what can be done is possibly one can put one can uh, try to build a space elevator around the moon. That would be much easier, and it is certainly possible, possibly. Uh, using the present-day technology that we have. At least the material is, uh, is already available. So that is the challenge, and that's what needs to be done. And uh, from my perspective, it is nearly impossible to even uh, think of a space elevator by 2040. And even if you have this challenging target that you will do it by 2035, you need to first become a multi-billionaire. Do not expect any government support. And then after you have become a multi-billionaire, you will need to very quickly develop the technology to put this into place. So it's a monumental challenge. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a monumental, monumental challenge. I am sure there are other things if you become a multi-billionaire that you can invest your time into, which will be more feasible and which may give you a better return on investment and be actually beneficial to the world at large. So that's the that's the scenario that you have to consider. And those are the different uh, challenges that you will face in the mission of, of, uh, of, of constructing a space elevator. Okay, the next question is by Karthik Srinivas. What makes some scientists believe that we are living in a simulation? Why do we feel pain if you live in a simulation? What is the simulation hypothesis? The simulation hypothesis is that the entire universe that we live in is actually a simulation inside a super in, inside a hypercomputer, which is run by some very intelligent species of aliens. So that is the simulation hypothesis. Why do people take it seriously? Because it is entirely plausible. It is entirely plausible. There is nothing in science that says that we cannot be living in a simulation. So it is certainly plausible 
that it may be it may be a simulation that we are living in right so uh, and the thing is this see everything that we um, that we can see around us everything that we can imagine around us if we have high enough computing power it can be generated inside a computer if you look at the games uh, that we have today let's let's look at the games that we had in the 1980s those were very basic games very very uh, very basic graphics very pixelated and very rough graphics but as the years went by the graphics got better and better and more realistic today if you play an xbox game a playstation 5 game or some other games it looks very realistic so you can create entire worlds inside the game environment inside your computer right you can do that and if you have a super computer you can actually um, you can actually model the universe to some extent you know with the laws of physics and everything inside the super computer so it's like the universe is evolving a small portion of the universe is evolving inside the computer itself so it is certainly plausible that you if you have a massive enough computer let's say if you have a matryoshka brain size computer which can let's say carry out 10 raised to 40 computations per second it is certainly possible to create a completely realistic world with people inside it the only assumption that we have to make is that you can actually simulate consciousness which we don't know about but if if that assumption holds true then you can certainly simulate an entire universe a very realistic very very real universe inside a computer of that scale a matryoshka brain scale computer so that is why some scientists believe that we may possibly perhaps be living inside a simulation and and that that uh, that is certainly plausible there is nothing incorrect about that assumption that is this may be possible i am not saying we are living in a simulation we don't know if you are inside you will never know what's outside right but it is certainly plausible that it may be the case okay this is by harpreet why is the west favorable or neutral towards buddhism and east asian cultures and hostile towards indian culture even discounting the sympathy towards tibet and the dalai lama they are also idolaters yet these are promoted as something very nice and desirable many in Inf- india get influenced by that see most people in the west don't don't know anything about india they 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 are essentially informed and influenced by the media by the media and the establishment so whatever is the prevailing attitude in the media and the establishment they will simply imbibe and absorb those attitudes and th- that's what shapes their world view so they it's not their fault that they have absorbed all that because that's the environment they live in now if you look at the west what really runs the west if you look at uh, what what is behind the media the media and the west you will find that a lot of it is funded by the catholic church and various uh, christian organizations there are other organizations also that are inimical to india and india is the last uh, refuge of polytheism of the ancient uh, indo-european indian culture indo-european culture so 2000 years ago indo-european culture was spread across eurasia from india in the east all the way to ireland in the west that was all uh, wiped out stamped out of europe by uh, by christianity it is very well known very well recorded there is no controversy in that right now india is the last strang- uh, stronghold so to say it's not very strong anymore but hinduism still exists in india and if india can that if if that culture can be erased from india 
then India can be manipulated in a variety of ways. Essentially, India can be used as a big captive market from which money can be extracted out of and siphoned out of. So the key is to eradicate Hinduism from India. And how do you do it? By demonizing Hinduism. The first thing they will say is caste, 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 caste. And Indians themselves, stupidly enough, believe that they are, their culture is bad, the culture is evil, we are casteist, we, are, we have been oppressing the minorities, we have been oppressing each other. This sentiment is so deeply ingrained in the Indians themselves that they are so diffident, they are so uh, they lack self-confident confidence. Um, they don't have any real love for the culture, so it's working, you know. And the same tropes are prevalent in the Western media that Hinduism is all about caste oppression. Hinduism is all about patriarchy. Hinduism is all about uh, burning women, and so on and so forth. So, because of these attitudes that have uh, been prevalent for at least two hundred years from the colonial days, because the missionaries created these uh, these. Uh, these uh, stories, these narratives, so all that is deeply prevalent in, in the West. And that's why they have this uh, feeling towards India that is um, one of uh, a great deal of hostility. So if And it's also because of the attitude of Indians who live abroad. They are very different. They don't show off their culture the way other uh, religions and other uh, ethnicities do. Right? They will not say, I'm a proud Hindu ever. They will just try to subdue it tone it down. They will all, always say Merry Christmas to others, but they will not expect anyone to say Happy Diwali to them. So these are the reasons why, because of this very self-effacing nature of Indians who live in the US, for instance, there are more than 3 million Indians in the US, a significant number, but they, they will never uh, they will never proudly show off their culture and practice their culture. They will just try to keep it hidden and subdued. So that, that is also one of the reasons and there is a great deal of Hindu-phobia in the West, great deal of Hindu-phobia, because of all these prevalent notions and attitudes and all that. So these are some of the reasons why they are uh, uh, hostile towards Indian culture, towards Hinduism especially. And there is this project to break Hinduism, like I said, and Buddhism, uh, the, the, the identification of Buddhism as a separate religion is part of that. So Buddhism is portrayed as something that is a, a resistance to Brahminipa, Brahminical oppression, whatever that is. Right, Buddhism is is was an attempt to to reform Hinduism, and that's why they show Hindu the, the they show Buddhism as something that is desirable, something that is positive, as opposed to Hinduism, which is negative. So these are the various techniques they have been using for quite some time to break Hinduism into pieces, to splinter Indian society into lots of small divisions, and that's why they portray Buddhism as positive and nice and good, and Hinduism as the opposite of that, as 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 the as the negative and evil uh, older religion out of which Buddhism emerged as a reform movement. So that's the overall situation and it's just going to continue until India does something about it. Okay, let's take the next question which is by Pranav Pandey. When India became independent, why did they adopt a parliamentary system of government and why not a presidential system? Also, is the presidential system more relevant than the parliamentary system in India? When India became independent is, <laughs> is not quite accurate. India has never become independent. What happened is that there was a transfer of power from the British to a set of people appointed by the British. They transferred power to the people they wanted to come to power in India. They did not transfer power in a democratic manner. 
there was no election of the first prime, prime minister of india the first prime minister of india was appointed by mohandas gandhi on behalf of the british and there was jawaharlal nehru the people who wrote india's constitution were people appointed by the british it was not the the constituent assembly of india was not a representative of the people of india many of those people were hand picked many of the people were elected in the 1943 election which was under foreign occupation which was, which means it is a completely illegitimate election so these are the people who framed india's constitution who decided what sort of uh, system india should have and that's why they were all people who were hand picked and appointed by the british they owed their entire political career and everything to the british and that's why they chose to continue the same british system in india the westminster parliamentary system they uh, they continued the same laws that, that the british had enacted nothing was changed the constitution of india was was again nothing but a, uh, a continuation of various uh, european consti constitutions and the british uh, and british acts and all that so nothing changed you cannot you cannot call that independence when you have independence from a foreign country it means that you throw away all their laws all their institutions and all the people who were who were appointed as puppets by them and you start your own system from scratch that is called independence india never got independence india is still not independent because we are still following the british laws the british institutions the british parliamentary system and the constitution and everything else india is still not independent right so that is why the so called the people who are alleged to be india's founding fathers as if india was founded in 1947 that is why those people they adopted the parliamentary system of government because they were simply a continuation of the british empire right not the so so not, the question is is the presidential system more relevant than the parliamentary system in india see the system that serves your country the best is the best system for you it is the most relevant system for you if you look at the parliamentary system which is uh, in place at the center and in all the different states where you have the state legislators what you have is chaos you have utter chaos all we indians do is argue argue debate debate talk 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 and nothing gets done you have election after election every year so much money is wasted in these elections so much time is wasted in all these pointless debates and shouting matches and precious little gets done the other thing is that you are not allowed my dear friends you are not allowed to appoint your prime minister you are not allowed to select your prime minister what you are allowed to do is to vote for your local mp and then all these mps will get together and they will decide who will be the prime minister you are not allowed to to directly vote for the prime minister of your choice why is that why are you denied this right in the us they have a higher house and a lower house they have the senate and the in the congress right but they vote for the president directly there is a little bit of indirectness in that but you get to vote for whoever you want to see as president in india you can't do that you cannot vote for i want this person as prime minister you can only vote for your local mp isn't that an injustice why are you denied the right to decide your own prime minister or 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 leader or your chief minister you are not allowed that right everything is indirect they are taking power away from you so, and you don't realize this you think this is a wonderful system we get to vote every 5 years or 4 years or whatever 5 years yeah 5 years in india you don't have any say in who gets to rule you at the end of the day so this system is not right for india 
it is just not right. The Westminster democracy system is a system that evolved over a few centuries on a small island in the Pacific Ocean. It is suitable for a small island in Europe. It is not suitable for a subcontinent-sized civilization like India. India needs its own system. The presidential system would be much better for sure than the parliamentary system, 100%. There's no doubt about it. There will be much more directness in that system. There will be much more decision-making ability. There will be much more political stability. Once you, in, in the US, once you once a president is elected, he or she, it's always been a he thus far, he is in power for four years. There is no question of him being uh, uh evicted from the from the position of president in india if you have a coalition government your prime minister can change every 3 months there is no political stability even when you may not have a coalition government still if there is a coup within the party you may have a new prime minister which you may never have expected so it is a very unstable political system that is in place in india when you have a big majority for one party, then things go smoothly. But if you remember the 1990s and before that, and even after that, you had these horrible coalition governments in which you had common minimum programs, which were nothing but, what can I say? It, it, it led India nowhere. It led India backwards. No political stability. Everybody is jousting for space. That is a horrible, horrible system. And that's what India has been laboring under for the past 70 plus years. And India thinks, oh yeah, it's the greatest democracy in the world. It's not. It's a terrible, messy, inefficient system that is doing more harm than good to India. In the 21st century, the world will be led by those countries that make the fastest decisions and implement them the fastest. And in the Indian system, everything takes an eternity. So the parliamentary system is not the right system for India. India needs political stability and strong leadership. It needs a system that can provide that, if we learn the lessons of history. That's the answer. Okay, in the future, will we be able to colonize Mars? Then can India shift its capital from Delhi to Mars? <laughs> Well, I don't know when we will be able to colonize Mars. We may be able to, you know, the plans that Elon Musk has. I think he plans to have a small uh, presence on Mars in the next 10, 15, 20 years at most. A small colony, at least the first human uh, footsteps of, on Mars. And maybe if he succeeds and things go well, then in the next 30, 40, 50 years, there may be a small colony of maybe 50 people, 100 people, maybe 1,000 people on Mars. Hopefully, India may also do something like that. I would like to see India show some ambition in its space program, which we are not seeing any of right now, but hopefully it will happen as India becomes economically more prosperous. So yes, maybe in the next 50 years, you may have a thousand, few thousand, few thousand people, humans on Mars. It is possible. It is not uh, impossible to envisage such a thing in the next 50 years. So it is quite possible, maybe even likely, that we will be able to colonize Mars in the future. But to shift a capital city to Mars, you would need at least 100,000 people. Otherwise, you can't have a capital with 50 people, right? A thousand people. So that would take a couple of centuries, perhaps, to have thousands, maybe millions of people on Mars. 
and even then even if india is able to send let's say a million people to mars and have its own city there what's the point of making that city in india's capital a capital city should be within the heartland within within the uh, geographical territory of the country of the of the nation right it should be right there for ease of governance you have this 8 minute time lag between earth and mars because of the distance between earth and mars it takes light and radio signals and all telecommunication communication signals 8 minutes is it 8 minutes it's something like that uh, a few minutes at least maybe 4 minutes i'm not sure i don't remember the exact number it takes a significant amount of time for a signal to reach mars and and come back to to earth and when you have a capital city you have a prime minister president king emperor whatever you have there that person needs to be ma- able to make decisions instantaneously and relay the instructions instantaneously you cannot have a time lag between uh between uh, you receiving some information making a decision and then relaying that uh, command to your subordinates so it doesn't make sense to have a capital city on another planet the capital city of india should be in india if india acquires a territory on mars we can have a capital city of that territory on mars but not the capital of india in mars but it will be nice to see human colonies on mars that will be a sight to behold okay abhilash says the other day you said that guru drona denied education to eklavi and karna because he was hired by the kings as the royal teacher teacher to educate and teach the teach the princes what i said that he did impart some education to karna it's a long story so then why is it the drona in my vocabulary cheated and asked for eklavi's thumb to put him down or more like to make arjun the best archer in the world is it because drona was not capable enough to teach arjun to be the to be the best or is it because arjun was not capable enough to learn to be the best you know none of these options apply here's what happened dronacharya was the royal teacher he was the royal guru he was not the only guru in the country there must have been hundreds of gurus in the country who taught martial arts so first of all there was no need for eklavya to come and ask drona specifically for instruction eklavya was not the son of a king eklavya was not a member of the of the kuru dynasty Uh, um, yeah right he was not who was eklavya see the way eklavya is depicted in popular drawings etc he is de- depicted as a tribal person he is depicted as wearing a tribal dress he has feathers in his hair and all that that is an attempt to mislead all of you eklavya was the son of a general in the army of jarasandha the king of magadh he was born in a prominent warrior family right so the question arises why did he not seek instruction from a guru in magadh why did he have to come and ask dronacharya for instruction if if a pakistani comes to india to the indian military academy and says give me instruction because you have to give instruction to whoever asks you should we give instruction to him and make him the best soldier in the world why should we magadh was the enemy and there's this guy from magadh the son of a big general who wants to get instruction from dronacharya why should dronacharya shoot his own 
nation, his own kingdom in the foot by doing that. That's point number one. Right? And secondly, what happened is this. Mr. Eklavya, even though Dronacharya said that I cannot instruct you, what Mr. Eklavya did was that he quietly, stealthily, secretly stole the knowledge from Dronacharya by observing in secret. Do you think that is ethical? To mislead your guru and to steal the knowledge he said that you are not going to receive? Do you think it is ethical what uh, what Iklavya did? He acquired knowledge through treachery. And therefore, I do not see anything wrong in what Dronacharya did to him. He asked him for his tambu. How is it cheating? It is Mr. Eklavya who cheated, who stole the knowledge by treacherous means. He was denied the knowledge. He said that you will not receive knowledge from me. Go somewhere else. Go back to your kingdom. Go to some other guru and get the knowledge there. I, My job, as Dronacharya would say, is to teach the royal princes of my kingdom, not teach you. So, According to the law, the principles of ethics, of dharma, Mr. Eklavya should have gone back to his kingdom and sought instruction from a guru there. But he stole the knowledge of Dronacharya unethically, through treachery, through, through trickery. He hacked the knowledge. He stole the knowledge. And therefore, I see nothing wrong with what uh, Dronacharya did to Iklavya. He demanded his thumb as Guru Dakshina because he stole the knowledge. Excellent job. That's what he should have done. It has nothing to do with Arjun. It has nothing to do with Karna. Karna is a totally different case. right? People say, why did uh, Dronacharya deny certain knowledge to Karna? Because he was not worthy of the knowledge. The problem is most people get their knowledge of history from TV serials. TV serials want to create controversy so that they can get TRPs and ratings and, and eyeballs. So they will try to create this artificial Karna versus Arjun divide. And maybe Karna was better, but Indian history has portrayed him as, as, as being inferior to, to malign him and all that. He has been uh, unfairly treated in history, all that nonsense. Karna was not worthy enough to get certain kinds of knowledge. He was a short-tempered, foul-mouthed person. He was not mentally as stable as the greatest warriors should be. He was not worthy of receiving the knowledge of the Brahmastra. And please note, please note this, that Dronacharya did not impart the knowledge of the Brahmastra even to his own son, Ashwatthama. So there's no question <laughs> of discrimination and all that nonsense. So I, I, would, uh, I would say that uh, it is best to learn history from actual original sources. What you can do is actually read the history, you can read the Mahabharat, maybe the original Sanskrit version, maybe a translation into your native language, into your mother tongue, maybe a translation into English, maybe even a smaller abridged version, but at least read the story once in written form. Watching TV serials is going to mislead you terribly. Okay, next question. Ah, here we go. Adarsh Kumar Yadav says, do we have free will or is free will an illusion? Some neuroscientists have claimed they can actually predict, accurately predict a person's choice by looking at the live brain scans at least five seconds before he makes a choice. Which means that we are just biological robots running on AI and algorithms. My, Your take. 
okay, no matter how I answer this, at least 50% of the people will disagree with me. Free will. Do we have free will? Okay. Let's, let's examine this from a different perspective. Let's say we create an artificially intelligent computer. A computer. So it's a machine, but it has artificial intelligence. And let's say it, we, we somehow make it conscious. So it is an, it is the, we have reached the, reached the singularity. Right? So this is a machine that can think that is aware of itself, that is aware of the external world. It can make its own choices and things like that. So it is like an artificial person, right? Does this thing have free will? What has happened is that we have created a machine. It is a machine. It is running on hardware and software that we created. We programmed it. And now for some reason it has acquired free will. Uh, it, it has acquired um, self-awareness, right? So does this machine have free will? So, so the the functioning of this machine that we have created, it depends on the hardware that we built and the software that we put into it. It is all created by us. The hardware is atoms and molecules. Atoms and molecules are governed by the laws of physics. Yes? The software is all logic. Again, it has its own laws. So once again, if you know everything about the software package, you can actually predict its functioning. And in a physical system made of atoms, molecules, etc., if you know the initial conditions, then you can predict accurately future conditions uh, using uh, the laws of physics. Essentially, it's uh, in, in, the, in the classical sense, it is all differential equations. If you know the initial conditions, you can predict conditions at any given time in the future. So the, the laws of nature, the laws of physics are deterministic. Now, when it comes to the microscopic world, quantum mechanics, you have random uncertainties, right? But those random uncertainties are genuinely random. They are not dependent on your will. So once again, even the laws of quantum mechanics are deterministic with some randomness, with some genuine randomness, with some uh, quantum jumps and all that. So if you look at the universe from this perspective, you find that it is entirely deterministic with some quantum randomness thrown in the mix. So this machine, if you know, if you have a big enough computer to calculate all the initial conditions and all, and, and, um, this, the positions and all the parameters of all the molecules, etc., you can deterministically compute a future state of the machine and you can actually compute everything that will be going on in, the, in that, in that uh, machine's brain. So that would indicate there is no free will. Now, that machine is like this machine, the human brain, right? The human brain is also made of atoms, molecules, all that. It is also confined in this, in, in this cranium, in this space. It is also made of atoms, molecules. It is also bound by the same laws of physics. It is incredibly complex. And yet, if you have a computer large enough to calculate everything, you can accurately predict every future later state of the system, which would kind of say that there is no free will in the universe. So according to science, according to the laws of physics, according to everything we know about physics, Free will 
doesn't exist it is an illusion everything in the universe could be predicted if you know the initial conditions of the universe at the time of the big bang that's what it means so according to what we understand of the laws of physics there is no free will so is there any free will what is my point my position on this my position is 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 this that according to the laws of physics there's no free will but we don't understand the full laws of physics there is so much in physics that we do not understand 95% of the universe is unknown to us we only understand barely 5% of the universe and we understand even that very poorly so according to our extremely limited and rudimentary and poor understanding of the laws of physics there is no free will but we clearly have enormous gaps in our knowledge so the answer as far as i am concerned is we don't know from what we know there are certain scientists who will tell you that we know physics and because of that there is no free will your emotions your thoughts are simply chemical reactions and that's it the thing is we don't know there is so much we don't know we don't even understand how the brain works we don't know what consciousness is consciousness and free will are clearly intrinsically tied together consciousness is an enormous enormous mystery um uh, and there is no definition or understanding of of consciousness in in the science that we know the laws of physics that we did we know have no conception of consciousness it is a baffling phenomenon so my uh, to 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 summarize i would say that we don't know whether free will exists or not according if if you will just go blindly with the little that we know about physics then it would appear that there is no free will but clearly there is more to the universe than that so my answer is it is a mystery does free will exist is it an illusion it is still a mystery we don't have the answer and i'm saying this from the from the perspective of science if i say if i go into the perspective of philosophy spirituality there are all kinds of answers which i will not go into i will answer purely as a scientist as an open minded scientist that we don't know okay chaitanya says can't it be said that hinduism or sanatan dharma is essentially basically an agnostic religion because in the nasadiya sukta the 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 him there is a hymn that questions who created it all the gods were formed afterwards who can tell it etc this seems very different from the abrahamic religions where the holy book declares this happened and then that came so hinduism clearly is very different from the abrahamic religions um uh, like you say in the nasadiya sukta the, the creation hymn of the of the rigveda it is essentially said that we don't know how creation happened the gods themselves came after creation so so what was there before creation and and who created the universe right and then if somebody created the universe who created him or her that is essentially the question that is asked so that is a very there is a very agnostic position to take right so if you look at this um uh, the nasadiya sukta there is clearly an element of agnosticism in the rigveda but if you look at other portions of the rigveda we clearly see all the extolations of the the gods hymns to the gods etc so i would say that hinduism sanatan dharma is a very complex uh 
spiritual philosophical system there are elements of everything in it there are elements of agnosticism there are elements of of i mean there is also the uh, in almost every philosophical school of thought in hinduism you have uh, the belief in the law of karma uh, many of the schools of thought uh, believe in a supreme soul that permeates the universe they believe in the existence of souls a permanent non destructible souls so there are lots of different elements in sanatan dharma there are elements of agnosticism but there are other parts of the vedas that would say otherwise as well so it's a mixed bag it's a very complex system it's not easy to understand and that's why it is so so very much misunderstood and misportrayed to a great deal but like you say there is clearly an element element of agnosticism in this particular uh sukta of the rigveda vijay says we know all the galaxies have a black hole at the center but what came first galaxy or black hole it's like the chicken and egg question what came first so what came first galaxies or black holes clearly black holes came first um in the very very early universe you, it is believed it is quite it is quite likely that there were these microscopic quantum fluctuations which led which created very small tiny regions of uh, over density of matter or, or, or rather energy which collapsed into black holes so it is very likely that in the very early universe right after the big bang there was this massive overproduction of primordial microscopic black holes and it is theorized that it is these primordial microscopic black holes that eventually formed the seeds of the supermassive black holes that are found at the center of galaxies so if this is correct which is which is one of the leading theories today so if it is correct then it would mean that black holes came way before galaxies so that's the short answer okay next question Uchiha Itachi says uh why are we not building new sculptures in temples like the old times now we just make buildings for gods to rest not for educational purposes like before so yeah this is something we notice <clears throat> whatever newer temples are being built uh they are very plain structures very very simple structures the walls etc if you look at the older temples that have survived you will see incredible sculptures on every inch of the walls human figures human shapes people dancing people doing things uh, people worshiping and and more than that right so very very beautiful carvings of human shapes are there on these ancient temples even if you look at the ruins of the original somnath temple that was that was destroyed uh you will see this beautiful uh carvings of human figures on that right if you look at the new somnath temple i'm not sure if there are too many carvings of human figures on the on the walls of the temple and if you see other newer temples that are being constructed you will hardly ever see any of those carvings beautiful carvings carvings of human shapes why is it so that is very perplexing i think we are now all abrahamized uh we are all secularized we should not draw the human shape anywhere and we seem to be very ashamed of the human human form we should not show the human form especially wearing less clothes our ancestors used to practice that but we are now 
modern, we wear clothes, we don't show any part of the body and that sort of thing. We kind of have become deracinated. We are losing touch with our ancestral culture. And that seems to be the reason why you don't see too many sculptures on the walls of temples, which is very which is very sad. And also, it may also be because partially that we don't have good artisans anymore who can produce that um, sculpture of, the, of that caliber. That may also be a reason for that. But at least we should attempt to do that. So it's, it's disappointing that temples are now being... See, first of all, hardly any new temples are being built. You will see other structures mushrooming all over the country, but Hindu temples, very few are being built today. And even those that, that are that are being built, you will see them like they're very plain and there's nothing really magnificent about them, which is which is disappointing. Okay, Ishwar Roshan says in South Korea, the majority of the population has no religion and are unaffiliated. Why did they have no religion? That's another interesting question. I think more than 20% of South Koreans are Christians, actually, practicing Christians. And they even send missionaries to other countries, including India, to to, to proselytize and, and uh, to preach their religion. But uh, I am not sure about the statistics, but if you what you say is correct, then it is interesting and strange that the majority of the Koreans have no religion. Uh, so let's understand what happened. Korea was uh, traditionally a Buddhist country, right? We know that. Korea has been a Buddhist country. Now, now what happened is that Korea got uh, got entangled in uh, in the Korean War, which was essentially a, a tussle for influence in the Korean Peninsula between the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese. On one side, you have the Russians and the Chinese. The Chinese, essentially, supported by the Russians, the USSR. On the other hand, you had the Americans. The Americans had a big objective. Don't let communism spread anywhere in the world. So that's why they wanted to uh, hold on to Korea. And the Chinese wanted to turn Korea into their strategic backyard and to give them more depth, strategic depth. And to use it as, as a bulwark against the Americans. So that's where this entire conflict happened, the Korean War. I think it was in the 1950s. It was a terrible thing. It devastated Korea. What happened at the end is that there was this uh, uh, ceasefire line that was drawn, which gave rise to two nations, North Korea and South Korea. North Korea is communist. It is completely atheistic because of communism. And South Korea is essentially under US protection or US occupation, whichever way you want to see it. So South Korea was devastated in the Korean War, completely impoverished, you had starvation and all that. Then the Americans uh, kind of assisted the Koreans in rebuilding. For 20 years, you had a de facto dictatorship in South Korea. And you had a great deal of American influence in Korea, in South Korea. And when you have American influence, you're going to have the associated missionary activities and all that. So the Koreans who were starving and extremely poor, they saw the Americans very powerful, very rich, etc. And they were all Christians and missionaries. So many of them converted to Christianity. I think, like I said, more than 20% of Koreans, South Koreans today would be Christians. And maybe it is also the influence of the Americans that led to other Koreans, lots of them abandoning their ancestral culture and becoming atheists, unaffiliated, whatever. Maybe they saw that, uh, maybe they felt 
uh, that B- Buddhism is pointless or or maybe it's not as great as as atheism. So I'm just speculating, but it's all something that happened after the Korean War. So it's all because of external influences. If the Koreans had been left alone, they had not been interfered with and and uh, manipulated from outside by the Soviets, by the Chinese, by the Americans, if they had just left, been left independent, then I don't think anything of the sort would have happened there. Korea would have still been a Buddhist nation. But that's how it works. That's how external influence works. That's how external interference works. It messes with your culture. It messes with your values, your worldview, and everything else. Okay, this is by Leluch. Can every Indian, when in school life, be trained in army camps for one to two years so that they may develop patriotism and respect for the nation and grow up to be mature and physically fit citizens in India? Well, it's not a bad idea. If you look at Israel, they all, uh, every Israeli citizen has to uh, undergo compulsory military practice. I think it's three years, if I'm not mistaken. I may be wrong, but I think it's three years. So everybody uh, spends a certain time as a soldier. They actually serve as a soldier, not just training, but actual service. And uh, that teaches them discipline, physical fitness, the value of uh, the freedom that you enjoy and all those things. When it comes to India, I wonder how many students India has at any given point in time. I mean, uh, young adult students, 18 plus. India must be having tens, maybe hundreds of millions of students of that age. Uh, let's let's assume it's a hundred million students at any given point in time. Now, how are we going to arrange, organize army camps for a hundred million students? The Indian army must have a strength of maybe two million. I'm not sure what's the exact number, two, three million at most. How will they organize training camps for a hundred million students? So, there you see the problem of scale. It becomes completely impractical to even think of this. Imagine how many resources you will have to spend. Your entire army will be engaged in training people instead of serving on the borders and doing whatever is required. So that's why it's an impractical uh, idea. It's not a bad idea, but unfortunately, given the resources we have and given the scale of the operation, it becomes completely impractical. What we can do actually is have the NCC kind of training, compulsory or optional, whatever, for everybody. Make it available to all students so that they can uh, so that they can um, partake in an experience of the military life. And not just marching and saluting and all that, but actual weapons training, perhaps, you know, or, or something similar to that. So maybe that could uh, help them imbibe some of the discipline that you find in the army and some of the values and uh, and the and the appreciation of what it takes to keep India free and safe. So maybe that is something that can be thought of, but but, uh, organizing army training for all of them will be really, really impractical given the kind of scale that is required. But it's not a bad idea. Something like that can certainly be thought of. We already have have the NCC, etc., that people, uh, that some students uh, join in college, National Cadet, Cadet Corps. 
So maybe that can be modernized. I think it's still a 20th century kind of institution. They still use those 303 bore rifles that were used in the First World War. So maybe it can be modernized and upgraded a little bit, and maybe that can be used to to impart that sort of discipline and training among youngsters. Okay, Abhishek says, why these days it has become cool for youngsters to drink and smoke? All my friends started this and they keep forcing me to drink and smoke. What should I do and what should I say to them? So Abhishek, what you need is new friends. Uh, the thing is this, the people who surround you day in and day out, they're going to influence you and they're going to shape who you are. You are the average of the, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a cliche, isn't it? That you are the av average of the five people closest to you. So if you have negative people around you, you're going to have negative thoughts all the time. If you have really positive, forward-looking people around you, big achievers, you're going to become like them. So if your friends are people who drink and smoke, and they are the kind of people who want to force you to do something you don't want to do, you need new friends. Those friends are not good for you. They're not good for themselves also. And if they are forcing you to do something bad and forcing you to do something you don't want to do, they are not your friends. They are actually your enemies. So what you need to do is get new friends. You need to find a way to remove these people from your, from your life in some way or the other. I don't think it's... Has it become cool for youngsters to smoke and drink? Maybe because of the media. Smoking, not so much, but maybe drinking, perhaps. This pub culture, it's cool, it's hip to drink and go to go to bars and all that. I, I, I don't think it's good at all. So all I can say is you need to cut these people out of your life. Okay, two questions. Abhishek says, we, const we constantly feel emotions and they continually infect our thinking. Please, please guide us how to deal with negative thinking patterns in stressful circumstances when we feel psychologically alone, abandoned and in moments of great doubt. Lots of young students are irrational and impatient. Some commit suicide. Many of them start alcoholism in the younger age. Please guide us. And the other one is, what are your viewpoints on the various changes and challenges faced by an ado adolescent? When you were an adolescent, how did you deal with them? And what message would you like to give the adolescents of today? So the number one problem you face as a teenager, as an adolescent, is you feel confused. You feel lost. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what is the right path for you. There are so many different options, all confusing, all scary. Society has these expectations from you. Your family has these expectations for you, from you. You don't understand yourself properly. You don't want certain things, but you are being pushed in some directions. And when you lose control of your life in this manner, it's what causes depression. It's when you see that you have no future that you want. When whatever future is in front of you is something you don't want. So that's what causes depression and all that. So what I would say is that um, what you need is you need to have, first of all, as a teenager, as early as possible, you have to find a way to understand who you really are. You have to try to understand yourself first because most people go through their entire life never understanding them, themselves. So you have to find a way to understand yourself. You have to introspect, spend some time away from other people, 
think about yourself who you are what are your likes dislikes what are your feelings what are your aptitudes what are your strengths weaknesses that's the first thing you need to understand secondly you have to understand that you are in this world to live a life that is best for yourself you are not in the world to please other people now when you are young you are powerless because other people family etc will force you in certain directions fine let it happen but you should have a big objective a big objective i by by that i mean you should you should have a certain objective about where you want to be when you are let's say 30 years old so let's say you're 16 now you're confused but give yourself a big goal that when i am 30 years old i want to have achieved this 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 and i want to have earned this this is this amount of money give yourself that sort of an objective when you have an objective like that then you will always feel that even if something goes wrong right now temporarily i still have time to reach there and remember remember this it's okay to make mistakes it's okay to fail when you are young you should make lots of small mistakes and you should have lots of small failures because they teach you a lot and remember remember this don't make enormous mistakes make small mistakes lots of small mistakes how do you do that understand what risk taking is let me give you an example i'm not saying do this but i'm giving you an example let's say at, at the age of 16 hypothetically you have 1 lakh rupees in your savings account what is a huge stupid risk risk it is putting all of that in the stock market everything that is a catastrophic risk that can wipe out your bank balance what is a good risk put 10000 rupees out of that 1 lakh in stock market and play around and see how it works even if you lose all of that no big deal so that's how you make small mistakes and that's how you learn from those mistakes iteratively so that is the approach you need to have in life as a youngster understand that it is perfectly fine to make mistakes it's perfectly fine to have some failures early on in life have failures it's okay don't do well in a few exams doesn't matter it's not the end of the world the future has lots and lots of options in front of you you may not be able to see them today but they are there and always have a big big goal in front of you 15 years down the line maybe when you're 30 if you have this sort of approach and if you surround yourself with positive thinking people or if you read positive things if you watch positive podcasts etc then you will stay positive and stay away from bad habits don't smoke don't drink go to the gym work out whether you're a boy whether you're a girl go to the gym and work out lift weights get strong if you are a physically strong person you will be mentally strong so these are some of the things i can tell and i wish all of you the best of luck i hope that many of you are going to be the future leaders of india and the world just go for it okay let's take one more question the question is two questions science fiction what are some science fiction and novels for a beginner in science and do you like science fiction books if yes can you mention some names i love science fiction when i was a kid when i was a teenager even as a young adult all i wanted to read is science fiction it's the most interesting genre for me now i read all kinds of things but originally it was all science fiction so what can i suggest as beginner science fiction i can suggest the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by douglas adams the foundation series by isaac asimov dune by frank herbert Uh, neuromancer william gibson jurassic park michael crichton hp lovecraft at the mountains of madness uh, starship troopers ring world by larry niven hg wells had the war of the worlds the time machine jules verne the french guy 
20,000 leagues under the sea and Arthur C Clarke great writer uh, 2001 a space odyssey so these are some of the uh, books i can suggest if you are interested in science fiction i found those books really interesting uh, great great writing so that's some uh, some examples of science fiction in case you want to get started okay this is the last question for today this is by nandita sharma why akshay bhullar is getting so much privilege on this channel each and every question that he asks gets picked by you instantly you have said that all people on this channel will be treated equally then why this this is my question for you okay fine i think i may have clarified this before but let me clarify again yes i have said that each and every person will be treated equally see what happened when i started the channel in the beginning is in the live chats i used to have this thing called super chats you will see this on many other channels so people will pay money to ask their question and their question is visible in bright color so you, it gets picked up automatically because it's so visible so that was i realized very quickly it was causing a divide among my viewers it was pitting those who could afford to pay money against those youngsters who had no money when you are a teenager when you are 20 years old you have no money to pay like this so it was creating a divide among my viewers so that's why i switched off this option of super chats on my channel i will never have super chats i will never take money to answer questions that is what i mean by everybody will be treated the same so everybody gets the same opportunity to ask questions that is called what is it called it's called equality of opportunity everybody gets the same opportunity now why do i pick certain questions more than every, rather than other other questions it's because i respect my audience see the thing is this if if somebody pays you gives you 3 3 seconds of their attention it's a big privilege and my audience watches my channel for thousands of uh, hours of watch time so that is a huge privilege my audience is giving me they are spending their precious valuable time on my channel and i will respect them by respecting their time how will i respect the time by giving them the highest return on investment on and the highest value for the time by selecting the best questions see that's how it works this i am not doing a lottery here that i will pick up some random question and answer them all i will pick up the best questions because i have certain standards on this channel it's called discernment i will judge quality of the questions and then i will pick up those questions so this is not an experiment in socialism and marxism where everybody goes down to a certain level of mediocrity right this is uh, i believe in meritocracy in meritocracy everybody gets to ask the questions everybody is treated the same but then the best questions are picked up it's like saying teacher teacher you said everybody will be treated equal so why isn't everybody getting first first rank <laughs> right so that is the the philosophy and there is a reason why this channel is popular why it is growing because it has quality it has standards right so that is what i do i give everybody the opportunity to ask the question but i pick only the best questions and the questions that interest me obviously right i i decide that so if you want your question to be selected you will have to rise to the quality of this show of the ask abhijit show you have to your question should be that interesting that good if you ask me a question that is so good i can't ignore it i will pick the question make me an offer i can't refuse so i hope that answers this question
okay i think i've run out of all the questions i'd selected now shall i take a couple of minutes of 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 uh, live chat questions i have deleted a comment of yours are you sure you know what youtube deletes lots of comments the algorithm deletes deletes comments based on the kind of words you use yeah okay so that's what i can say what else do we have anything else i can see thousands of comments i'm not sure if i can pick any of those right now lots of questions are repeated yes i will repeat certain questions because i answer every time i take a question i answer it in different ways and many of the new viewers have not seen my older answers so that's why i sometimes take questions that are repeated that is for me to decide all right all right um yeah okay i think i think i'm 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 done for today it's almost 2 hours so thank you everybody for your questions keep asking me great questions i will pick the best questions always and only the best questions i get thousands of questions per week my objective is to give you all the best value not by taking everybody's questions at random but by taking the best questions so that you will all learn something that will hopefully be valuable to you i hope that even 20 years in the future when people see these these live streams and the in the short clips they will still find something of value and something that will be relevant even 20 years in the future that's why i only pick selected questions all right thank you very much everybody thank you very much for your time and i will see you again tomorrow tomorrow is a live chat session so come ready with your questions and i will see you tomorrow thank you Take care. Bye.